Association for the Visual Arts is the peak body protecting and promoting the professional interests of the Australian visual arts. Nava in Conversation is a series exploring the issues and challenges of working in the sector. We speak with artists, curators and administrators to gain insight into the experiences of contemporary practice and seek to propose ideas for change, progress and resilience in both local and global contexts. to be here at UTS Gallery as part of Art Month Sydney and how particularly fantastic to be here on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where I was born. I've spent most of my time on the lands of the Bunwarang and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I'm just back after quite some time and wherever we are it's important to stop and reflect and acknowledge how much has happened on this place on this country before us, the stories, the celebration, the gatherings, the mourning, the coming together on a land whose sovereignty was never ceded. So I pay my respects to elders past and present and to all First Nations people who are here today. Let's have a conversation about political confusion and artistic courage. No biggie especially given what's been happening in the world lately, it feels like a very timely conversation. And to have this conversation, first of all, we have getaway uh, Kuku Yalanji man, artist, internationally renowned artist, Tony Albert. <laughs> and new knuckle noogie man, festival director, theatre director, all-round fabulous, also internationally renowned, Wesley Enoch. <laughs> I'm Esther Natalitas, the director of NAVA, and we are going to be speaking here in front of the work of Robert Andrew, which is going to slowly and, and quite beautifully mark out some territory in the space behind it. It, just, it is so dark and intense and thoughtful. I think it's quite perfect. We'll try not to kind of turn every now and again and feel it creeping up on us in this fabulous way. So, political confusion, artistic courage. When we first put the idea for this talk together, we thought, well, it's a bit unsatisfactory, the level of political debate in Australia at the moment. Unsatisfactory because, I mean, that's probably the putting it mildly, isn't it? Unsatisfactory because there are ideas, there are issues, there are problems, there are world-changing and life-threatening issues that face us that our elected politicians just don't really seem to be up to tackling and up to facing, whereas artists are getting on with it. Artists are making work, artists tend to ask the questions and tackle the questions and compel us to think about the issues that unfortunately politicians seem a little bit too afraid to do. And now given the horrific events of just a few days ago where our world has been rattled, the people who should be thinking really, really seriously, and I mean kind of like existentially seriously about what they say and why, are seemingly very reluctant to do so. And once again, we've, you know, we're in this situation where language 
actions, inaction, and public responsibility, we've been reminded that these are life and death issues. So this is a time where having this conversation, also a few days out of a state election and uh, an unknown number of weeks out from a federal election, is incredibly timely. So thank you to you both for joining us. Let's start with Tony. Tony, I was just enjoying your work at Artspace this morning in the show Just Not Australian, very timely, more timely than they've realised. And you may have noticed that in Nava's strategic plan, but also the, the key image, you know, the hero image for a very appropriate expression that we're using for our advocacy campaign around the federal election, which is called Invest in Artistic Courage, for these important public statements, we've chosen work of Tony's. So Tony, tell us a bit about that series, that community project, and what led to those really beautiful and audacious images. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for everyone to be here. And Wesley, I thank you as well. You inspire me. And I should mention that that work is co-authored by David Collins and each one of the children in the work. So I think it's Karen Smythe or is in that one. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so thank you to both of them. So collaboration is a huge part of my practice. It's something that I believe wholeheartedly in. One of the greatest things you can do is collaborate with someone. If you yeah. want to learn about someone else, someone else's culture, someone, you know, to walk in someone else's shoes, I guess is what I'm saying, is, is uh, you know, has been the greatest life experience for me, particularly with other Aboriginal communities. So we are all just like our introduction. We come from different places. Aboriginal is kind of this, this word we use that is quite, in a way, incorrect. It does bring us all together, but our languages are different, our laws are different. What we practice as Aboriginal people is, is different 100 kilometres down the road as it is to another country. So I love collaboration. I've been given so much opportunity to collaborate it's I'm lucky to have I think these great relationships and rapports with people having worked with inside an institution worked with an artist that has I think been able to get a bit of notoriety um, winning the Telstra was an amazing thing particularly with in the scope of Aboriginal people that quite often are excluded or are remote or regionally or very remote. Access to a lot of things is very hard, but, you know, Telstra was an amazing thing where I had lots of, you know, very senior people at the awards, you know, oh boy, we, we know that story. Mm. That's the story of our young people. And as much as the, the media and other people like to pit us against each other, there's, there's urban and there's traditional. There's all these terms which are, are, are very problematic and, and it's used to divide us. It's a great war technique, uh, strategically done to pit two minority against each other. It's so disappointingly so easy. While isn't we're it? fighting each other, we're yeah. not fighting the real problem. Yes, exactly. Um, but it's through that that I've, you know, a lot of the collaborations I have done are through invitation. And so Warakuna actually had the opportunity to have an artist. They got together as a community and said, oh, we'd really like Tony to come. I, I, I receive an invite for that and then I think, you know, in any collaboration you want to understand how can I do the best for the person I'm collaborating with. Because if everyone thinks like that, it's going to be really deadly. Like, because that means they're thinking that about me too. So I, I go, I, I understand why I'm going, I listen to what 
you know, the first thing you say is, what do you want? Like, I'm, I'm not going in there with an, uh, an idea of what I want to get out of it. It's how can you utilize me to maximize whatever it is you want to, to happen out of having me there. So the artists, they, they give me a list of things and, you know, which inc includes from collaborations to working with kids to playing bingo. You know, this is all <laughs> the things that I prepare and get ready to take on a trip with me because it's so important also that I'm not there just to make work or be part of the art community. In really small places, you, I, I'm there for, every, for everyone. I want everyone to know why I'm there and if they want to somehow be involved in me being there, that they have that opportunity as well. There should be more Aboriginal, Aboriginal collaborations. There should be more Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal collaborations. Unfortunately, it has just been done so wrong for so long that it either uh, doesn't work or it's kind of even almost frowned upon. Like people are too scared to go and work um, in a community or worried about those kind of ramifications. So, you know, I, I feel with the collaborations too, I have to lead by example. I have to show that there are successful ways of working with communities, mm. which are more than mutually beneficial. They have to benefit the community, you know, outright more than anything else. But just very simple things, you know, like the children in the work co-author, co-own, but they're shareholders in the work as well. Whatever I make out of any of the work, they make the exact same amount. So there is an opportunity also for sustainability and a viable income to come out of that. And that, you know, again, is something, sounds really simple, but it's, you know, imperative to the practice. So I didn't intend making those works with, that, that, that photographic series was almost a second tier, if you would say it. It wasn't something meant to happen, but when you go to community, like the kids, as soon as school's finished and there's a, someone new in town, they race over, like they're, <laughs> you know, because they're, they're, they're in, inquisitive and intrigued and, and you're an outsider and, and they want to know everything about you. So, you know, that, that series came about through talking with the children, wanting and understanding maybe what they wanted to do while I was there. The photographic work just has a very simple, tangible, but uh, what you say, it's like straight away, like an instant yeah, gratification. Immediacy. You can look at the mm. image on the screen. You mm. can give a child a camera and they... You know, you know they, they, they know, they see what's happening. It's not, it's not an aftermath. It's not, a, you know, years later they get to see an outcome. It's instant gratification, which is kind of amazing. And it was about them really showing me that, like, if we're going to do these photo shoots, what are we going to, what are we going to take photos of? Tell me about the place. Where's the best, you know, it, it, you know, Warwickon is like a movie set. It's so amazing. They have a car graveyard. Uh, the interesting thing with that work also, and I hope a lot of you have seen it, is that like the kids are replicating superheroes and Star Wars heroes and all kinds of things. Sorry, I'm aware we're podcasting. I should have um, the mic closer to my mouth. <laughs> Warakuna is quintessential. It's the Seven Sisters story. It's like when you think of Aboriginal art, you think of like the kind of work Warakuna does. It's like a lot of, it, it's looked at very futuristically, but their stories, like this could be a story as old as time itself. Mm. That's, that could be the origins of people here in this country, which is what... I really love like this story Star Wars is not something that is foreign to to this community in fact artists and pe they paint constellations that are no longer visible from earth their knowledge is so un their, an understanding of what Amazing. is going on in our solar system is so much more advanced than a, a Western idea like that's you know how incredible it is so I 
I often like to think or say like that, you know, these, this isn't new or this isn't something from the future. It's actually something that is intrinsic to our culture and our past. Um, and that's what made it kind of really exciting. But primarily, to answer your question, I just feel like I'm a collaborator. I feel like uh, one of my favorite, favorite things is to work with other people and learn from other people. I mean, for you, it's clearly uh, an ethos, you know, it's clearly what, what defines you. But also, Wesley, something I was really hearing in, in what Tony was just saying, was different kinds of leadership and different kinds of, I guess, the role of the artists. So different kinds of leadership, artistic leadership, but different roles of the artists. Tony's talking about collaboration, about, you know, being in a situation where, you know, you're not kind of driving, leading, top down, some kind of, you know, you are learning from, you are stepping back. What does, what does artistic leadership have to teach political leadership? Well, I, I, my reading of the current political climate is one in which values and ethics take a back seat to political power. Absolutely. So this notion that the sole purpose of representing a community is to keep the power over the community. Mm. Whereas I think artistic leadership is more we are, we are servants to the community. It, it, not, not in a kind of mendicant way where they say, can you please do something? But the idea that we are given by the tribe the resources, the, the, they will hunt and they will house us and our job is to make meaning in the world, to bring back meaning, and that there is an ethical and values-based relationship with the community. I think that any artist who doesn't believe in that connection, both, you know, that, that could also be a very critical relationship. It doesn't always have to be, you know, positive and, you know, reinforcing. It can be one where we are critically engaging. Someone who doesn't believe in that doesn't actually believe that their, their art-making needs an audience or their mm. art making lives outside of their own view of the world. And I think that the most powerful art and the powerful leadership is one in which we believe that we have something to say to the world. We have something to pass on. And the only way to do that without feeling the arrogance of the position is to do it through some kind of sense of expression of values. In, in what I'm hearing what Tony was saying is going, actually the, the way of in, embracing everyone's creative urge, everyone's sense of their position in the world, that you don't have these, the monopoly, if you like, on the, on the view of the world, that through this art we can express who we are and where we come from. And I, want, I really worry that our political leadership isn't learning enough from the arts, that business isn't learning enough from the arts. It's interesting that Ian Narev was the chair of the Sydney Theatre Company, and he was also the chair of, and the executive of the Commonwealth Bank. Yes. And this whole notion of, at the time, they got rid of the artistic director, of uh, Jonathan Church, who was the artistic director of the Sydney Theatre Company, was there for six months, and the chair got rid of him, and we all went, why? And what was the, what was the ethical reason why this was the case? He wanted change, he wanted to make change, he wanted to develop more relationships with local artists, he wanted to develop things. Well, that was the conversation that was going on. And the sense of moving him on was done without any kind of relationship to the artistic community, let alone the audiences of Sydney. And interestingly, parallel to that was also the Commonwealth Bank, who was looking at uh, their customers as uh, 
the ability to take their money without delivering services, et cetera, et cetera. And you feel like going, yes, that's right. There's, when, when those kind of values of business that are not about valuing the people that you're working for, if you believe that their, their only role is to harvest them and take what's good for you from them... To mine them. To mine them, to e extract whatever you want from them, then eventually I hope that democratic processes will remove them. And I think we've seen that recently with the, the Royal Commission, even though it took years of trying to push for that Royal Commission to happen. And I think that the voices of artists are often the ones who come and say, we need a valued ethical framework to which we can make our work, that we can uh, commit, connect, connect to our communities, that we need to um, articulate a different vision of the world. And what I've loved recently is just, I've got a bit of a, a vision, if you like, of the donut. This mm. notion that we, many artists, um, are articulating their positions from the edges of society, be it the, the, the cutting edge, the sense of moving forward, or in, in my case, I really say that, you know, culturally we've, we've learnt to, you know, walk many paths, you know, in terms of the paths that our families have taught us through generations of telling story, uh, but also then the Western forms and going through education to do all that. And that what we're finding now is that the ethical and values deficit that sits at the centre of our society is calling upon us to come into the middle. That it's calling upon, in this case, Aboriginal artists to actually provide a little bit more uh, a sense of what the view is and where we're going. And I love things like the, the statement from the heart. We, we were talking about this earlier. The, that Uluru statement from the heart, which is an incredibly beautiful gift and ethical in the sense that we must share and we must go forward. But the party politics of it, the power structures say, no, we don't want to share power. So therefore we will remove that option. Or even recently when the Prime Minister talked on International Women's Day, you know, and everyone knows that quote where he was saying, oh, we don't raise people up crawl. by putting people down. And you go, well, if we believe that maybe maybe he does believe that power is an infinite, you know, energy that everyone can share as it grows bigger and bigger. <laughs> but I believe that that the sense that if power is your only goal, then you will do everything to hold on to it. Yeah. And as an artist, we're we're more likely, well what I heard what you're saying, Tony, is that we relinquish it and just say, actually there's more power in giving over mm -hmm. to others and saying, this is true leadership is by offering, offering some fellowship to others as well. To say, oh, you're, isn't, aren't you an amazing view of the world? Why don't I follow you for this moment in time? Um, you're, you seem to be an expert. These young people are an expert in their own experience. Why don't I follow them? And this notion that leadership is only about controlling power rather than relinquishing is, is terrifying as well. I don't know, the politics of our country is based on so many uh, layers of lies, you know, going from terra nullius and that kind of, that, the, the sense of uh, suppressing the truth about, you know, First Nations of this country. It's so many layers upon that, that everything is about taking whatever you want before the truth comes out. And I think that artists are, are by our very nature, truth tellers. We are trying to tell as much truth as we can. And so they do keep us on the drip feed. You know, we're not, don't give them too much. Give them enough that they can kind of fulfill a bit of a role and step over there and not be too angry. 
but not give them so much that they can actually influence the world in the way that I think true, true artistic practices can. We can actually can change the world around us. Yeah. Can and must and do. That's um, yeah. There's so so much is critical about what what you both. So I'm going to pick up the donut because donut. the donut and also the kind of you know this understanding of power is finite or infinite because, um, as you say, when the when the prime minister um, speaks so appallingly about uh, women, about gender differences, but also about immigration, um, that understanding of power very much about uh, you know control. But I think it's about it's it's not about power being infinite. It, it, it's about such a limited understanding of power that it's so finite that it can't be shared. It's a zero-sum game. So that means understanding leadership as something that whose terms the people in power define and not as something which is distributed, which is, you know, a property of groups, which is actually something that, that we kind of create together. When you went to the donut, today or yesterday, I saw this, this great story about this donut-shaped piece of simulated or lab-created tissue which can be used for people who've had spinal injuries and it, you know, it's run to the spine, it has been shown to regenerate nerve tissue. Now, as you can imagine, that is absolutely, you know, life-changing. And it's a, it's a biological innovation, but it's also mathematical. It's almost kind of astronomical as well because we think about what's the composition of the universe and how does matter work and, you know, the, the movements of kind of heavenly bodies and so on. What's the, what is the big scale and what is the small scale? But it's also something, that shape, that form, appears in so much story and folklore, the, the journey and the return, the centre and the periphery, the centre that recasts itself. And that got me thinking about what Tony said about photography and the immediate. So that journey that happens when you're working in collaboration with a group of artists, with a community, being the new guy in town. Tell us about an example of a situation where, and you, and you gave a, a kind of a story earlier of working with, with individual artists there, but where you found yourself, I guess, I'm, I'm really interested in that perspective of being discombobulated, being lost for a moment, whether you're in the centre or in the periphery, and then something happens, it's, it's a connection, it's a collaboration, and you find your strength by being and, and, and giving. I imagine you've got a lot of experiences like that. Uh, yeah, too many. <laughs> too um, many. Too many. What I think is important to come out of that statement is one that it is okay to be lost. Yes. It, that's a total valid point. That's a total valid state of being. And it's also okay to fail. And actually the understanding or the willingness to fail is actually a big part of what I believe is success. Yeah. If you don't put that pressure on yourself. I'm reminded when we speak of this about this, I guess it's um, a term I hate, which is the close the gap. But when you, yeah. when you break that down and think about it, it is about understanding something that is either misunderstood or not understood. And I think in this current political climate where there's an 
there's an idea that is just something that is right and something that is wrong, and there is no leeway of learning or trying to find out about something, yes. which that is really is so important. you know why where should our prime minister understand that probably not talking on International Women's Day <laughs> or at least giving the voice to a woman to talk yes. is yes. really fundamentally important, and when you can't kind of break through that. You know, that, of course, is, you know, where the problem lies. So it's not only a willingness to fail, it's an understanding that, you know, you need to listen to alternative perspectives or ways of understanding. And that's where I think art is so important because it often offers up questions rather than answers. You know, I know I don't like to give a lot of... Or I don't even know if I do give answers in my work, but it's rather about planting a seed of thought yeah. and giving people something to think about and then comparatively when something happens. And I don't think it's immediate either. It could be something that uh, happens that night on the news or a week later in the newspaper and someone thinks, oh, that's what you know, that artwork was about that I saw. You know, just, just to, to, you know, I'm not someone that aggressively points the finger as well because I think that is important to fail but the immediacy of where we are and sit now it becomes very hard because mm. you can do something and it can be all over social media or something that night you know you can find yourself I think in a lot deeper trouble you know I praise the lord I grew up when you know iPhones and internet didn't exist um, <laughs> Because there'd be some shockers. Um, and I feel <laughs> I've also someone, you know, I've learned the hard way. I've done a lot of, you know, I've done things wrong. But what I've done is listen to when I have and made immediate kind of rectifications in changing or, or improving myself. And I just think we're, we're battling at the moment against, yeah, just simply right and wrong with no buffer. And that's really, it, it's, it is very hard. And it was, you know, your introduction about, you know, it's nothing more timely. I feel for 20 years, every time I get up to do a talk, it's so timely right now. <laughs> and, and, and it really, this is like, it's most timely. It just yeah. is this reoccurring buffer that is so infuriating a lot of the times. It's absolutely infuriating. I mean, to be on the edge and the centre, but to see things turn the way that they keep doing. There's a lot of conversation around neurodiversity. Yeah. This notion of people who think in different ways that, you know, if we talk about biodiversity and the, and the need for biodiversity within an ecology to, to function properly, and the more diverse, the actually the stronger it is. Yes. That it's less likely to be fragile or be, or be pushed over or, or cease if, if the diversity is very strong. And that what we're seeing a lot is a kind of neuro... Oh, what, what, what would you call it? Inhibition. Sing, in, singularity almost. The group think has kind of taken oh, over in a lot yes. of kind of... That we're algorithmically inclined to only be talking to people like us and that we're building systems that continue that. And that art is one of those places where neurodiversity is actually encouraged. Different ways of thinking. When you talked before about, you know, sciences and, and, and maths and mm. they are all cousins of art. Yes. They are all creative thinking. The ability to use your brain in different ways and, and connect to different parts of your body to imagine something and then to find the way of achieving it. That is, in fact, 
uh, an artistic kind of uh, source, uh, a creative source, that science is just as equal to saying it's creative as, as the arts are. And this idea that if we only... I do worry about the medication of individuals, especially children, that, that suddenly you say, no, this child must be medicated so they can, they can be part of a system that needs them to be a unit. And, and uh, it's a very complex idea, I, I accept that. I don't think there's only one answer to this. But what happens to the amazing mathematicians who are beautifully autistic and high functioning and actually do amazing kind of in-depth calculations and thinking because of their neurodiversity as well? Or what happens to the child who is so kind of um, hyperactive and that that they in fact need to be a dancer. You know, that, that story of the child who, you know, the parent wants to medicate them and the, the doctor says, no, 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 you don't have a child who needs medication, you have a child who's a dancer. Give them things to do with their natural instincts. Oh God, wouldn't that be something? Well, and why are all the kids allergic to everything all of a sudden? Oh, well, I don't... It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> but I think you're absolutely right because neurodiversity, I mean, let, let's talk about that and, and the ethics that the artist brings and generates because the diversity of thinking, of making, and of course the, the, the lifelong project of posing new questions, which you know artists are, are so committed to, this is something that we talk about different kinds of leadership and, and political leadership and that notion of learning and what it means to learn. You know, learning isn't just the assimilation uh, of information. It's a kind of adaptability. It's a kind of readiness. And it's also about filling your instincts and being able to respond to those instincts in well, different ways. But it's almost like political leaders aren't allowed to change their minds at the moment. Though... Tony Abbott has changed his mind about the environment, but I don't know and whether isn't that's... that fabulous? I don't know whether that's evidence-based or not, or different types of evidence. But this notion of saying, look, I love this idea of why aren't we happy in not knowing? Yeah. You know, and wondering about something. Even now, if we have a question, we go, oh, we jump for our phones and we want to know the absolute answer mm. or what Wikipedia mm. will tell us. What happens if we just kind of... Just brainstorm and imagine what it's po what's possible in thinking about oh, it. Oh, exactly. We don't do that so much, I don't think. Which is what I love about what is so compositional about your work. I mean, if we look at the work in Hyde Park, for example, that is something that, you know, shocks and arrests you until you realise that the memorial standing right next to those massive shells is memorial to objects that have killed people. And similarly, the work that I've enjoyed a number of times, but uh, most recently down at ArtSpace as part of Just Not Australian, is a composition of objects which have seemed so normal to, you know, kitsch Australian life for so long. But when you present objects in a way that recast the mind, you know, that, that stimulates a kind of thinking that recasts our ethics. That's quite interesting, especially thinking of the memorial in Hyde Park, because from the get-go, I was very adamant that I, I didn't want to make something that was really beautiful. You know, it, it is tough, it is hard, and I mean, if you want to be trolled and hear some <laughs> criticism, don't put 
<laughs> seven, eight metre tall bullets in Hyde Park. Um, Noted. <laughs> you know, you just have to lay in bed with a cool towel over oh your head. Oh, um, You know, but literally, too, you know, I had one comment that, you know, I ha how dare this artist do... You know, I have to walk past this every day oh. and, and think, uh, you know, oh. and, and look at these bullets. And suit. it's like, oh, her... You know, how, how horrific that you have to think about, you but know, the devastation. They think that that wasn't the intention of yes. the artist. Yes, you know, it's like you are totally, mm. yes. You, you totally get it, actually. Um, thank, thank you. <laughs> thank you for responding with guts to my yes. work. But I was really well aware that, you know, it did, I didn't want to, like, a dolphin waterfall and um, <laughs> um, something like that. Very interestingly, the quadrant that I chose to put that in, I, I, I walked around and felt where I felt it most beautiful. There's actually a memorial to women in that quadrant under, it's about this big under a tree that was planted for Look, women you know, We war. don't want people to rise at the expense of <laughs> yes. others. It's, you know, keep it which, contained. Which was, which was quite amazing. But, yeah, I just think that, that yeah, often, you know, I still look at it and think it's very beautiful as well, but there is, there, there is this, this tension and this pull and pull about, you know, the, the effect of something or, or the intention, which is which is also incredibly important, but it oh, is yeah. it's most interesting for me that adverse uh, feelings about it, which you know is in turn exactly you know you're feeling exactly how you're supposed to, is kind of really interesting. That's yeah, so important. Yeah. We are rapidly running out of time, oh, and really? you've probably got questions too. Any of you can talk about having any personal encounters with politicians and how they oh, good might, times. Um, yes. what they might say to your face and mm. then how they might actually behave. Yes. Have you encountered a politician? My sister in the is wild? Uh, the Minister for the Arts in Queensland. <laughs> She's a state minister. <laughs> Little known fact. What's fascinating, I'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying this, is that there are personal views, then there are views expressed in caucus or behind the scenes. And then there's a consensus that is then the public view. And so, you know, God, God help us. I, I just love the idea of independence, the people who don't have to caucus behind closed doors to come out with a united front. And that we're, we're missing a lot of that kind of conversation a lot in our politics because the deals have to be done behind closed doors or the media will see you as, you know, it's disunity and all those kind of things. So my experience with politicians has been that there's um, often they want to jump the process to come to the product, to come to the outcome. Yes. They want to go, look, can we just do this? And then they spend most of their time talking about how do we tell people about the decision we've made. So that there's a whole sense of that sounds right, that's got evidence behind it, done, done. You've, you've done all that research, that's great. Now how do we sell it to people? And I worry, though, because we as a, a population are becoming more and more disconnected to the conversation a lot. I mean, Adani is one of those very oh. complex conversations that are happening at the moment, but no one is engaging in the nuance of it. And, you know, there's the Adani is bad and should never happen and coal is evil, and the exact opposite, which is an extreme position too, which is saying... You know, uh, you know, it's all about the money and the jobs and we shouldn't think about the environment. 
but in fact most people live in the centre there somewhere. And how do we take the public conversation away from the 5% at either end, that's kind of looking at extreme positions at either end, and come back to the centre for conversation? And what I've seen from politicians is, in fact, the, the politics, because we believe that 51% is enough, we don't go for the people who agree with us, we go for those, those extreme positions. And just watching politicians try to bring those extreme positions in to, to galvanise enough support to get back into power is, is horrendous. But even within political parties, and this is, I'm not quoting my sister in, in this, but within political parties, your, your biggest enemy is the person who's in the same party with you. Not opposite, you know who they are, it's the person who's there. I was told, look to the health ministry for the next political leader or the person who's considered a rival to the leader because you cannot win any goals from health. People are always going to be too sick, there's always going to be people dying. And so you, you see this kind of political playing going on where the leader says, who's my greatest rival, I'll give them a portfolio that is still, you know, you know, important, but will keep them at a certain level. Mm. And it's that wonderful, interesting power play internally. And very little conversation, really, uh, everyday conversation about how do you represent the people that you work, that you, that you have voted you in. That's very pessimistic, isn't it? <laughs> Language is incredibly powerful. Language colonises the space that we're in. Well, it's interesting. And language is what we have. But even, we, you know, we talk about First Nations, we talk, yes. talk about Indigenous, we talk yes. about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. I remember Jimmy Everett, who's a wonderful playwright from Tasmania, talked us through the evolution from native, from blackfella native, mm. and talked about every time, every there's a cycle that goes about every 15 to 20 years, the language changes so that, in this case, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, Murrays, Kuris, don't get to own the language anymore, and it keeps shifting. And who gets to rewrite that language is often the most powerful in that way. And I think that that's a metaphor for everything else that happens. The political language keeps changing because every time you get some kind of power in a particular position, there's a kind of undercurrent that moves it on. And, and it's interesting that feminism, you know, is now become, well, it's not a dirty word, but, you know, new feminism or neo-feminism. Oh, yes. There's all this kind of rewriting of language and redefinition of language, which is just terrifying. But who's actually in charge of it is more important for me as well. And it seems like a question also of people just trying to uh, keep up with not just, you know, when, you know, who is the we who uses language in particular groups and, you know, which language belongs to the us and to culture and to community, depending on, you know, who our family is, where our homeland is, who our subcultures and our, you know, favourite music and our, you know, slang and so on are. And I think it's one of those great examples of where politicians are afraid. You know, Wesley was just saying in response to your question about 
about, you know, one of the, 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 the biggest, you know, fears for politicians is their own colleagues and something I'm constantly saying to artists when they're wanting to talk to the arts minister and to others is, you know, don't forget the arts minister is already on side. The arts minister is trying to convince their front bench colleagues to support the arts. So give the minister the language that they need, but also go and talk to those others, and you're only going to speak in the language which makes the most sense to you. We've probably got time for one last question. Who has got a question for Tony or for Wesley? Thank you, Wesley. Uh, I, just, I just wanted to thank you all for being here tonight. It's really inspiring to have such strong arts leaders for all of us, and I think you've spoken really beautifully on a number of important issues. I suppose my question is possibly a little naive. I think we've talked a lot about no. difficult questions tonight, uh, difficult conversations, and how artists can sort of have them. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for people that may be here tonight or maybe listening about how we can start those difficult conversations and how we can try and impact with them. I suppose, and see them through. That is a good closing question. Thank you. How do we start to have the questions? How do we have that courage? And how do we sustain them? How do we see them through? There you go. No biggie. Go for it, Tony. <laughs> I think it's um, beholden on everyone to go, what is the biggest, biggest problem, biggest issue, the biggest thing in your life, globally, nationally, regionally, individually, family, and to go, how do I address this? At the moment, I, I'm having, I'm, this is like, I, I've been talking about this for ages, actually. My brother, who's having a lot of trouble in, as, a, as a person, you know, um, substance abuse, uh, hasn't worked in 15 years, you know, was just living in a house with, without electricity for a month. And going, what do you do to help him? And how do you then say, oh, climate change, climate change, climate change, that's the <laughs> biggest issue, when in fact your family is the thing you've got to deal with first. And to see those things as related, mm. that in fact to go, oh, actually, my brother needs as much uh, idea about sustainability and looking after himself and, and being loved and cared for and challenged as the politician does. And so you need to have stakes in it somehow as well. And, you know, and I've been thinking about this. I've just been... Because I get through coaching and counselling and things as well. And this person was counselling me and saying... Because I was going, oh, what should I do? And they said, should you make a show with him? Should you make a piece of theatre? And, you know, what's the ethics of exposing my brother to the world that I live in or my sister lives in? And how, you know, is that an ethical position? And what does he want to do? And what's the... And suddenly you're going, oh, I have to sit down and just talk to him. And... I, I guess in a microcosm, that's what every artist has to do, is go, I don't know yet, but this is what I think is really important and I need to address it somehow for my own good, for my own sense of life. And as, as long as you're working from that position, I don't think you can ever be wrong. That's a deeply honest position to, to start with and be grounded by. Tony? I think... Something like for me and where I've come was the best things happened to me when I finally let go of the, I think, a preconceived idea of who I should be or how I need to present myself. And the best thing I feel I ever did was just, and it's been very recent actually, just let that, let that go and think that I have something also to say that's important and it might not be in line with 
how I was taught or what uh, the outside is expecting from me, but it was enough trust in myself to actually just say, it's okay to do it this way or my way. And, I, you know, it's a really hard thing to do, but I just wanted to say that that's, you know, a, a recent maybe... It's not an evolution. It's just a little thing that a mantra I've taught myself that it's okay to, to, to do it my way. And, it, you know, it might be the long way around. <laughs> but that's, you know, oh, that's how sense. I get to it. might be a bit different yeah. to other people. But, you know, that's okay as well. Yeah. I think the courage to be ourselves is one of the most difficult lifelong lessons, one of the, and, and, and understanding instincts and trusting them, and in fact that takes us right back to our question around political confusion, artistic courage, you know, if people in roles of political leadership understood themselves as, as, as being, you know, embodied beings on those kinds of processes, trajectories, neurodiversities, you know, embodiments, I mean, that's, and to, to reflect and to get that and to draw on that, I think, is, you know, kind of the most important thing. Before we thank these two, I would love to thank UTS Gallery. Thank you so very much for having us. Thank you to Art Month Sydney for another extraordinary program. And please join me in thanking Tony Albert. and Wesley Enoch. <laughs> and to everyone at NAVA who made tonight possible, let's keep the conversation going.